Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Without question, one of the unfailing marks of a genuinely healthy church is when women and men sing loudly about their own sins and about the wonderful perfection of their Savior who took their sins away. Let's pray. Lord, your mercy is more. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and with a desire to truly confess, and with hearts that want to be brought closer to you, we ask you to bless the preaching of your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. If you'd open with me to Isaiah chapter... 59. Isaiah chapter 59. So let me talk to you about bad preaching. Bad preaching is like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of the Bible. And each copy was made on an inferior model of Xerox machine with poor amount of toner and inferior optics. This is not what we want. Just because the Bible is open, we can, we're so, we're so dastardly that we can open our Bible and we can just do somersaults away from the Bible constantly true expository preaching sticks as close to the Bible as it can. In this chapter in Isaiah 59, really two things happen. Sin appears utterly and exceedingly and odiously sinful. And the Savior of sinners appears utterly and completely merciful and mighty. And the thing about Isaiah 59 is Isaiah communicates brilliantly. If this sermon, this sermon right now that you're about to endure turns boring and turns off your imagination and removes you from the Bible, then I have failed and the failure is all on my part and not a bit on Isaiah's part because Isaiah just shuffles into this chapter image after image after image to make the teaching dynamic and to awaken your imagination. This chapter is filled with images that are meant to be indelible in your memory and they're meant to be inescapable to your conscience because they show you and they actually make you feel and resonate with what he's trying to say. So our outline this morning is four pictures of, I could have chosen from about 16 different pictures. These are pictures that Isaiah wants us to have in our imagination because they will seep down into our conscience. The first picture is of a hidden face. If you look with me at Isaiah 59, verses one through three. Look at how many illustrations are in these simple three verses. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. 
but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. How many pictures did I have to choose from there? I really could only pick one, so I picked the picture of a hidden face. I could have picked the image of a, a, a short hand that can't reach far enough. I could have picked the picture of a dull ear that can't hear well enough. Even when he says in verse two, your iniquities have made a separation, he's using a, a spatial term that is physical to talk about a spiritual separation that is metaphysical. And actually the whole thing begins with God stating, so to speak, with God stating the superfluous. You tell me, does God actually have to say out loud, my arm is big enough to do whatever I want it to do? I don't think he has to say that. Does God actually have to say out loud, my ear hears well enough to hear everything all the time? I don't think God actually has to say that, but God himself speaks that way to us to get us to understand what's going on here. The first point of our outline is the picture of a hidden face. And I hope that I hope to prove to you that what that picture pictures is this sin and unanswered prayer. Sin and unanswered prayer. The Lord doesn't have to tell us that his ears work well. But what he is telling us is that he hears, he hears the prayers of the humble and repentant. And what the Lord God is telling us is that he has chosen to refuse to hear and rather to reject the prayers of the unrepentant and the proud. If we could take a moment and link chapter 59 to chapter 58 and chapter 57, because there's a similar drumbeat in all three of them. In Isaiah 59, Isaiah is showing how wicked their sin is and how odious their sin is. He says, your fingers are wrapped up in iniquity. In chapter 57, Isaiah is condemning them for their paganism, which he equates with adultery like cheating on God. And then in chapter 58, Isaiah condemns their, what we would say is their church services, their giving of offering money, their fasting. And he says, that's all hypocritical because you live lives that are so sinful. And one of the things that connects 57 and 58 and 59 is that each of these three chapters has a precious promise about prayer. But none of the precious promises about prayer in Isaiah 57, 58, or 59, they're not going to be the promises that your Nana took and cross-stitched on a pillow on her couch. Because all three chapters have God Almighty saying, I promise I'm going to turn my face away from you when you pray. What a thing for God to say. 
In chapter 57, I'll show you where God says it. Chapter 57, verse 13. 57, 13. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them all away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. What a slam. I take Isaiah 57, 13 as as God basically hooting at them in derision. Like, you want to trust those idols? Let them answer your prayers and see how far, far down the road that gets you. God's having none of it. In Isaiah 58, there's another perilous promise about unanswered prayer. Isaiah 58, it comes up in verse 4. 58, 4. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. God's saying, you will lift your voice in prayer wishing that fasting made your prayer even more uh, strong and God's promising, I'm not gonna hear your voice. Because why? Your motives are putrid and your actions are vile and violent. You just throw a fast on top of a life that's hypocritical and unjust and exploitative. And he says, I'm not gonna hear you. Then here in 59, one and two, God says, I'm not gonna hear your prayer. Verse one picks up the accusation that God's not answering their prayer. And God says, you're right, I'm not answering it. We won't take the time to give a biblical, a whole biblical view of suffering and even healing and prayer. God, basically there's no promise in the scripture that if you live the right way, God will answer all your prayers and give you everything you want. There isn't that promise in scripture, but there is there are multiple promises in scripture that if you live the wrong way in unrepentant sin, God says in in that season, I'll turn my face away from your prayers. These promises are both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, a particular one in Peter that is meant to awaken husbands who are sinning against their wives. But verse one picks up this accusation. God's people are saying, God, you're not answering us. And is it because your hands don't work or your ears don't work? And he says, yeah, I'm not answering you, but the problem's not in my inability to help. That would be a shortened hand. The problem's not in my disinterest or my inability to hear. That would be the ear that's dull. The problem is your unrepentant sin. So it's not that complicated church, right? I hope you already know this truth. This is a universal truth that you would do well to remember every day of your life. The truth is this. It's always true. You should keep it with you in your pocket. If there is a problem between you and God, there is not a problem in God, which leaves one alternative. If there is a problem between you and God, there is no problem in God. Who does that leave? Good theology, uh, the aseity, the immutability, the impassibility of the divine trinity, good theology 
says with a bunch of big words, God is always God. God is steady. God is reliable. God doesn't change. He is God the same all the time. God and God alone doesn't have bad days where he's cranky. He doesn't have days when he's tired. He doesn't have days like I do when I help people and I have a bad attitude while I'm helping them. He's not like that. But we are constantly changing. Sad thing is sometimes we just change from one sin to another. But sometimes by God's mercy, we change from sinning and excusing it to actually repenting and confessing our sin. But God was the same all the time. It wouldn't be improper to picture it as a waterfall that is always more than enough than we need. Mercy, love, great. God is that waterfall which is never changing and always running to overflowing. And we are cups that are either upright so the open part is under that waterfall or we are cups that can flip so that the closed flat bottom part of the cup is under that waterfall. It's not that complicated and you understand to flip upright means to repent, to confess, to say, God, I'm the problem. To flip the cup so that the wrong side is up is to have a hard heart, double down and say, and say God, you're not worthy of me obeying you and you're not worthy of me trusting you and I, and I can't trust you enough to confess my sin to you. There always has been and always will be more than enough mercy in God, but we change so that to us, his ear is dull. That's the first picture, a picture of unanswered prayer. The second picture is a picture of snake eggs. Verse five, the adder is a venomous snake. So the ESV translates it adder. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. I want to take some time here with this text before us to talk about the consequences of sin. And the picture of snake eggs is meant to picture this. The picture of snake eggs is meant to picture this. Sin and its consequences personally and socially. Your sin and its consequences to you personally and also its consequences to the house you live in, the street you live on, even the very nation in which you hold your earthly citizenship. Sin and its consequences personally and in society. Well, before we pick up the adder's egg, let's take that picture of the spider's web. You see what he says there? The sin is like a spider's web. But then he says in verse six, the web will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. 
The image I take is an image of a cloak on a really cold night. The image of a coat that you need to keep you warm. And he says, if you're looking to your sin to keep you warm and safe, you might as well wrap yourself in an in eight-inch spider's web. It will never happen. Which is him saying this. Have you ever heard this statement? Sin gratifies, but it never satisfies. You cannot get from sin the warmth that you need. It's impossible. You cannot get from sin the covering that you need. It's impossible. You can't even get from sin the enjoyment and pleasure that your heart craves. It's impossible. You can't get from sin what you need. You can get from sin what you temporarily want, but you can't get from sin what you need, which is to say that sin gratifies but never satisfies. And if you know that, if you nod your head and you know that, that sin gratifies but will never satisfy, did you know that that in itself is an inexplicably valuable gift of God's mercy to you in your life? There are so many who don't know that. We pray for our loved ones who are not saved yet, and we pray this in particular. God, may the gratification that they receive from their sin become increasingly bitter. Would you turn them? Would you turn them to see that in Jesus and in Jesus alone is everything that they need? From the image of the spider's web, we can see the image of snake eggs, which I take in this chapter to mean not merely the personal results of sin, but the societal and cultural consequences of sin. The Apostle Paul quotes this section in Romans 1 and Romans 3, when he talks also about the personal effects of sin, but he also talks about the societal chaos, the cultural chaos that it causes. You see these images, they're inescapable, that, that he's talking about something that comes down the line because his first image is an egg that eventually is going to hatch. And then the image that he uses in five again is of poisonous vipers. And then the image that he uses in verse seven is feet that are running faster and faster. Sin accelerates cultural decay. So that society itself, he actually says in verse eight, society itself loses its ability to ever have peace and justice. Loses its ability to ever have peace and justice. Because there's this ongoing blindness that cascades on and on. That's why uh, the apostle Paul picks this up when in Romans one through three, he's talking about the unspooling of cultural sanity. God gives them over. So can we just take a hundred seconds and talk about our current cultural insanity? I'm not a cultural expert, but I've been alive for 50 some years. And I know that, I know that 40, 50 years ago, our society started saying, uh, fornication and adultery, not that big of a deal. It's okay, it's okay. And I've been alive long enough to know that 30, 20 years ago, 
our culture started saying homosexual perversion, not a big deal, it's okay. And I don't watch a lot of news, but I've seen enough news lately that our society, our public school system is like pornography in little kids' libraries, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. It's insane, it's insane. You see lately these bills in state houses where someone's trying to say, uh, we wanna stand against the butchery of little children, either surgically or hormonally. And uh, the, not just the media, but the, the, the politicians who people vote for are saying that to stand against that, to stand against that is evil. To stand against common sense parental rights and the protection of children is somehow evil and wicked. This is the consequence of the chaos when the viper's eggs are nestled decade after decade and the snakes wiggle out. Here in Isaiah, Isaiah is speaking to Judah and there's a particular theocratic element to this as God's people. America's not the same. That there's a particular reference here but there are certainly general principles that are extrapolated like in Romans 1, Romans 3 and other places that show us this is likewise, there's truth here for any culture in any century. What do we do? Well, the church preaches the gospel. Christian citizens can and should speak against these, these uh, aspects of wickedness in our culture but the church as the church recognizes that these, these are, everything that's happening, the church recognizes that this is the sludge at the bottom of a long slide and the only way for the whole thing to be rolled up is the preaching of the gospel, the confession of sin and the reception of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. From this, sad picture of God turning his face away to this awful picture of, spy, of snakes' eggs. Let's turn to the third picture and it's a little bit happier. It's a picture of uh, moaning doves. And I'll tell you, this, the, the moaning doves, this is what it represents. The moaning doves, this picture represents confession of sin, confession of sin. And we see this in verses nine through 13. Read 9 through 13. It says, therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we're like dead men. We growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgression and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart, lying words. The description so far has been very, very bleak. But here we begin to see just a little bit of hope. 
there, there's an interpretive issue here. You, you can, interpreters take it different ways. I take verses nine and 10, where he says we're groping in the darkness and we're blind. I take that as we're finally realizing we're not gonna be able to work our way out of this. It's like the beginning steps of confession. And then I take the moaning of the doves as the moaning confession of sin. The reason I interpret it that way is because verses 12 and 13 are very clearly a direct confession of sin. You see there, we say, this is how we've sinned. There's no excuse. There's no blame shifting. We're not blaming the Edomites and we're not blaming the last generation. It was us. There's a full confession of sin. And I also interpret it that way because then in 13, 14, and 15, there's a turnaround and the God who had refused to hear now comes and saves. So I think it's proper to to interpret verses nine through 13 as the confession of sin which means that even though the description of verses one through eight is very dark and very sad, there is always hope as long as there's someone left who's lamenting the darkness, as long as there is someone left who's confessing their sin, as long as there's someone left who says, this isn't right, we have to repent. Lord, we need your mercy. As long as there's someone there to moan like a dove. Isaiah 59 verses 9 through 13 are about the confession of sin. I actually don't have to say too much about the confession of sin because today, today, when you leave this service and go to ABF, our ABF teachers who are incredibly handsome, and also biblically accurate, they're going to be teaching on uh, 1 John 1, 8 through 10 and the surrounding context, which is all about the confession of sin. But I will say a couple things about it. The problem for many of you, the problem for you is that you look at confession as a burden when actually confession is a blessing the problem for you, and this, this gets deep into like your inner psyche. <laughs> the problem for you is that you look at confession as shameful. When actually child of God, confession is the pathway to glory. It is the pathway out of shame and it is the only pathway out of shame. Why would you resist it? Why would you refuse it? because the most tempting fallacy that we've all believed since our mother Eve and our father Adam is that when we sin, our only safety is in covering it ourselves. Our only safety is in covering it, in hiding it. But the fact is that by uncovering and pleading guilty, by accusing ourselves, we can be acquitted and declared clean by Jesus Christ. Thomas Watson, the Puritan writer, has a wonderful paragraph about true repentance. And he starts with uh, this observation. The first thing God made was light. The very beginning. The first time God said, let there be. He didn't say, let there be the Beatles or let there be culvert. Let there be light. The first thing God made was light. And so the first 
thing the sinner needs is illumination. The eye is made for seeing and then for weeping. The sinner must see his or her sin and then they must weep for it. This is the first step to paradise. Uncovering, admitting, asking for help. To talk about confession of sin, like I said, you, you'll leave here and go into ABF, you can talk about it more, but uh, when we confess our sin, uh, maybe three quick things that would, that would clarify what true confession is as opposed to sham repentance. The first truth would be that when we confess, accept the blame, accept the blame, which means accept all the blame and make no excuses, no blame shifting. There may be circumstances and extenuating circumstances. We all have circumstances and extenuating issues, but let those all crumble like a sandcastle at high tide and just say, I've sinned, I've sinned, it's my fault. Sinning or confessing is accepting the blame. Certainly confessing is agreeing with God, agreeing with God. That means you need, you need to call your sin what God calls it. A sincere confession of sin is specific. A sincere confession again says, I was proud and I was angry when I said that, when I did that. Will you please forgive me? Because I was proud and I was angry when I did and said that. True confession accepts the blame, agrees with God. And then couldn't we say something like this? True, true confession gets to the root of it, not just the results of it. True confession gets to the root of it, not just the results of it. This is uh, shown wonderfully, I think it's in 2 Corinthians 7. It kind of says, anybody can be sad about the sad consequences of sin. Anybody can be weepy and angry or mad or upset about the, about the, about the devastating effects of sin. That doesn't even take the presence of the Spirit of God. Anybody can dislike the pain that sin causes. But where are the true confessors that get to the root of it? And they hate sin, not just because of its consequences, but they hate sin because God is so beautiful and sin is sin against God. That's why I hate it. This third picture of the true confession of sin leads us to the fourth picture, which is a picture of a mighty warrior a picture of a mighty warrior. When we, are, uh, when, when, when we are unable to help ourselves, look who shows up. Verse 14, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public square and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness 
as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. And those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of your mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forever. What does it mean when it says in verse 15, the Lord saw it? And then he says again in verse 16, he saw that there was no man. This picture of a mighty warrior, you know, is the picture of the savior of sinners. The mighty warrior is the picture of the savior of sinners. What does it mean and why does he repeat it twice when he says in verse 15, the Lord saw it. And he says again in verse 16, he saw that there was no man. It's not that God suddenly becomes aware of something that he wasn't aware of before. The eye of the Lord is in every place, beholding the evil and the good. God is totally aware of every situation. But he's hearkening back to verses 1 and 2 and 3, where God's, God's people felt like he, he wasn't hearing them and he wasn't helping them. And it was true that he had withdrawn his blessing from them and he had withdrawn his protective presence from them. He had turned his face away because of their sin. But after they confessed their sin, he's now turning back to look on them favorably. Verses 15 and 16, church, verses 15 and 16 to me, they ring with a comfort that comes down from Isaiah's day right into our own day. The Lord sees, the Lord sees our miserable condition and the Lord sees, verse 16, he saw that there was no man and wondered there was no one to intercede. God sees our miserable condition and God sees our inability to save ourselves. We can't get out of our condition. And so we're taken behind the scenes into what God sees and so to speak, how that makes God react and what he does about it. And his reaction to what he sees, it says in verse 15 that he is displeased. It actually says in verse 16 that God is appalled. He sees there's no one and he's appalled that there's no one to intercede. Then, see that in verse 16, then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. God is displeased and appalled that there is no one to do it. So what does God do? God commits to bring about the work of salvation himself. Note the reiteration, his own arm and his own righteousness, his own arm and his own righteousness. What's he talking about? He's talking about the suffering servant. This is the very language from Isaiah 53, the end of the chapter, where it actually says there, the suffering servant will see and be satisfied by his righteousness the many will be made righteous. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he bore the sins of many. In Isaiah 53 at the end, it's saying that the mighty warrior Jesus Christ divides the spoil because he did it all and it's referring back to that here. 
Church, I got to tell you, verse 16 is like the crackling Old Testament equivalent of some of our favorite New Testament verses. We like John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. We love Acts 4, 12. There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which man can be saved. We love 1 Timothy 5, 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Isaiah 59 verse 16 is the Old Testament equivalent of those precious promises. God saw there was nobody and he wondered there was nobody. So his own arm did it himself. And then you you just can't stop through verse 17. What's going to happen when the son of God straps on his armor and puts on his helmet? He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for his clothing and he wrapped himself in zeal. He didn't just do it. He did it with zeal. And what does he do? He repays those who have unrepentantly abused others. And he forgives and saves those who call on him for salvation. The chapter ends in verse 21 with the promise that God's spirit. So this is one of those places where our Bibles are open and we're looking at the Bible. And it's so cool because what's, what the Bible is describing is what we are actually doing in this millisecond. What verse 21 describes that God will give his word to the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament prophets will preserve it down through the generations. And then it says there's children, children, the next, the next, the next generation. So I believe that, that what we're doing this morning in the expositional preaching of Isaiah 59 is the ongoing continual fulfillment of God's goodness in this promise of Isaiah 59 verse 21. And we can summarize the whole chapter with verse 20. Because verse, cha- verse 20 says, A redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. That's where we have to end. There is a promise and there is a condition. There is a promise and there is a plea. Get yourself in on it. You see it? There's an unshakable promise. A redeemer will come to Zion. But there's a challenge. He will only come savingly to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. Oh, he will come to everyone. But he will come to some clothed in vengeance and zeal. He will come to others clothed in forgiveness and zeal. You see the difference? There's the promise that he will come but he will come savingly only to those who turn from transgression. It's a promise of what God will do. And it's a call commanding everyone here to get in on what God is doing. And so we're praying this morning that this call in Isaiah 59 verse 20, that this call will hit a nerve in you and you'll see your sin for what it is. And you will see your savior for who he is and you'll turn to him. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we praise you for this precious promise that the Redeemer will come to Zion. And Heavenly Father, weak as we are, we lift up to you your very words about that promise that he will save those who turn, those who confess, those who repent. And so we ask you, who made the promise and who issued the command, would you now by your spirit give us the faith to receive the promise and the faith to obey that gracious command? Let us turn from sin. Give us the power and the taste to turn from sin and give us a vision of our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can confess in the confidence that the blood of Jesus Christ on that cross has made the way, has paid the price. So give us zeal as we confess and give us zeal as we sing to the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. May he be glorified in the life of his church. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.